Let us move now to the reading of the gospel. If you will stand, we are in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more to spend. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're really excited to begin this three-week series about the parable of the Good Samaritan. It, you may remember that a couple of years ago, we did this same uh, three-week kind of look at the prodigal son. We talked about each of the characters, and we kind of peeled back all the layers to that story that so often we think we know, and then we discover new things about it. So um, today, we have this interesting parable that is in response to an inquiry from a lawyer who asked this question, teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question, which is pretty typical for him. And he asked, what is written in the law? What do you read there? We know from his answer that Jesus recognizes that the lawyer has authority and a role in the religious community. Now, the term lawyer, from what we consider as an expert, as someone who knows the law of our government and country, is different in this setting because this man is either a Pharisee or a Sadducee, and he is trained in the law of the church or the religious law. And so it is a little bit different. He does know the Jewish laws inside and out, and he is clearly testing Jesus. And then he responds to Jesus' question from a question by quoting the law. First, he says, love God. This is a standard confession in the Jewish faith. 
faith, one that they actually pray and say every single day. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, 18, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus responds that the man who is the expert in the law clearly knows the law and is correct. When he's referring to Leviticus 18.5, Jesus responds with, you shall keep my statutes and ordinances. By doing so, one shall live. So Jesus refers to the law. I want to make sure you get it. The lawyer refers to the law and quotes it to him. And then Jesus says, you are right, and referring also to the law. So just when you think that might be the end of it, the lawyer comes back with the second question a little bit deeper, room for interpretation. And he asks, who is my neighbor? And we have to wonder, is the lawyer truly trying to limit those who are called neighbor, right? Does he want to say those that are unclean are not my neighbor, so I do not have to love them as myself? Uh, those who don't practice the law and follow the rules might not have to be my neighbor. Those who are Gentiles may not have to be my neighbor? Is he really closing the loop of who is our neighbor and who is not? Or is he simply pushing Jesus and testing him and daring him even to say that all those other people that should be on the outside might actually be our neighbor? And so, of course, Jesus, who rarely answers a question directly, tells this story. And I want to call it a story for a moment because we have called it a parable. And by calling it a parable, we automatically assume that it isn't real. But the people listening to the story, the lawyer listening, all they heard was a man was traveling on this road. And the reality is that this road has a reputation. So those who were listening, they would have believed that this was an actual event the story of a man on the road. So this road, unbeknownst to me before this week, is about 18 miles long, and it descends 3,200 feet. So I was trying to wrap my head, because I'm not really good at that, about how big is 3,200 feet. It's about the height of a 32-story building, or the height of Mount McKinley. In Alaska, if you've ever been to Seattle, sometimes you can see the ridge of the mountains there. This is one dangerous road. When I was growing up, we used to say, everyone would tell you, because I lived in Altmulgee, and when we drove to Tulsa, we'd go through Glenpool, and it had a reputation. And you were taught very young, do not speed through Glenpool right? You knew that if you were going to get a ticket, it was in that kind of six-mile stretch right there. And so every child in Altmulgee is taught from a young age, do not speed through Glenpool. And everyone you know who does gets a ticket. And so this road has a reputation as well. And so when Pastor Sharla and I were preparing for this week, we each had a story about a dangerous road that we have been on. I'm going to share mine with you, but if you're going to have to listen to hers or go to church twice today if you want to hear her story. But mine was when I was in college, 
and I was traveling to um, Mount Crested Butte. Some of you may have been there or heard of it, but my uncle had a condominium there, and it was spring break when I was in college, and I went to college in Texas at Southern Methodist University, so it was a pretty good drive to get to Crested Butte, Colorado. I went with my roommate who had the better car, and we were driving a small pickup truck. As you know, they don't have a whole lot of weight to them, but it was the better car. It was the one we thought might actually make the journey. And so we headed to Crested Butte, and the only way that I had ever gone there um, in all the times that I've been with my family was over Monarch Pass. Now, I don't know if you have ever been over Monarch Pass, but it's the Continental Divide. It's over 11,000 feet high, and it started to snow while we were going up the mountain. And so we drove and drove, and it got he the snow got heavier and heavier and heavier, and the visibility on the road became less and less, and it's going switched back, back, and forth, and back, and oh, it's more like this. <laughs> it's up and up and up and up. And it got so bad that I could not see the edge of the road. I couldn't see any of the lines. All I could see was snow. And so what I did, and you know, this is a girl from Oklahoma, I didn't drive in the snow a whole lot, um, but what I did was I kept my eyes on the mountain. And I said to my roommate, if I just hug the mountain, <laughs> we'll get where we're going. And we were terrified. We were both terrified. And I was getting constant instructions um, because <laughs> they were from Iowa and wanted to drive, wanted me to stop on the highway in the snowstorm and let them drive. And, and I was like, you can't die falling off the road in Iowa, right? And so I was like, you're no better at this than I am. But we just creeped along. Well, one of the things that happened was the other, the other traffic disappeared. There were no other roads, cars on the road. There was no place to turn around. If you've been on a mountain in Colorado, there are those little places for like semis when they lose their brakes to run away, but they're out on the ledge. There's nothing next to the mountain. There's, you can't pull over, right? An avalanche or rocks or something might land on top of you. So we were forced to continue on this road. We didn't have any other choice. When we finally got to the top, they said to us, that highway is closed. <laughs> and we said, but it wasn't at the bottom, right? It, wasn't. it closed while we were on it. It was so dangerous that they were making everybody stay at the hotel at the top of the mountain. And we were just thrilled there was one room left and that we had gotten it. Um, but it was terrifying. It's the only time in my life where I actually thought, I could die today. This is it, right? And I wasn't even sure if anybody would know to look for us or where to find us, right? And how long the blizzard would go on. And so that is the most dangerous road that isn't always the most dangerous road, but in a blizzard, it clearly was. And often when we get on dangerous roads, like the one I was on, we can't get off. We have to travel in the midst of our fear and our uncertainty and our inability to see where we're going. Today, we don't know 
why the man in the story that Jesus tells got on that road with that dangerous reputation. We don't know. Maybe he was in a hurry and it was the shortest and fastest way to get where he was going. Or maybe he um, didn't think that the longer way he was capable of traveling that far. Or maybe he was new to the area and he had no idea that that road had that reputation and to stay away from it. But we do know that he was beaten severely, that he was stripped of all that he had, and that the people who came upon him did not know if he was alive or dead. The text reads literally, robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So typically, when we teach a story, we rush right to the Samaritan, right? The feel-good part of the story. And um, so today, I don't want to do that. Today, I want to talk about the priest as the first person, in, as Jesus tells this story, who comes by. Now, I can imagine that if I was that man lying on the side of the road, that I would be glad to see the priest coming that he would represent someone who was safe, that I would recognize um, him as someone who would help me. He was literally God's intervention, right? How often you've been in a terrible situation, you pray for God to intervene or do something. But much to our shock, the priest doesn't stop at all. Not only does he not stop, he crosses to the other side of the road. Now, I don't know if you have ever been a person walking down a sidewalk or a road that people have crossed to get away from, but it is an interesting feeling to think that person is so afraid of me, they would choose to go to the other side of the road. I have been in that situation um, with a group of people that were really big and mostly people of color. And, and the folks coming the other way crossed to the other side of the road in fear and uncertainty. It's a terrible feeling to think that people would do something like that. Maybe, maybe the priest thought that the guy lying on the side of the road was a trap and that if he stopped to help, that there were robbers who would come out and he would also get robbed. We don't know. But one of the things that we don't always remember is in the culture of the time, then there was some risk to the priest to stop. In Numbers 19, we have more laws that um, I want you to know about. Numbers 19, 10b through 13, we read, those who touch the dead body of any human being shall be unclean seven days. They shall purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third day and on the seventh day, they will not become clean. All who touch a corpse, the body of a human being who has died, and do not purify themselves, defile the tabernacle of the Lord, and such persons shall be cut off from Israel." This text reveals to us the nature of the risk to have touched this man. The, for the priest to have touched the body, unsure 
if it was alive or dead, he would have put in, been put into quarantine <laughs> until two years ago. We didn't know how awful that was, right? Quarantine for seven days. He would have been unable to fulfill his role at the temple to do his job. And then if he didn't do the purification process, which I can't imagine a priest unwilling to do that, but I want you to see the severity of the law that if you don't do the purification process, then you are considered dead and completely cut off from the community. The pr this priest or this lawyer who is hearing the story knows because he's the law keeper. He's the one that, that tells people if they're clean or pure. And he knows that the priest on the road would have known the laws about purity and cleanliness. The priest depends on the temple for his livelihood, for himself and his family. And for those of us who are ministers or staff in churches, we are that same way. In a sense, not only are we serving God, but we depend on the church for our livelihood. And sometimes what we want to do or say does not line up with keeping the peace in our congregation. And so we do things in order to make sure that we can all function together and live together in harmony. We often demonize the priest in this story and his unwillingness to help because we have never really considered the risk to his safety, his livelihood, his role in the community. How many of us can honestly say that we would stop and touch a body on the side of the road that has been stripped and beaten just to check to see if it was alive or not? How many of us would pause and stop everything we're doing to take that kind of risk. And even though the laws of cleanliness in the Jewish community are so pervasive, they also teach us all the laws about hospitality. They are just as important. Remember the scripture about hosting angels, those that we do not know may be angels? I have to think that regardless of the risk to himself, the priest should have stopped and helped the man. He should have paused whatever he was doing to at least cover him and arrange for burial. You see, in the Jewish laws, the man should have been buried within 24 hours of his death. If we assume, much like the lawyer who's listening to Jesus, that this beaten man is a Jew, why would the priest not stop to help one of his own people? That'd be, it'd be like Charla and I crossing the road and not stopping for one of you. This whole encounter begins with the reciting of laws. The laws of the faith and how to follow the law has really failed this man lying on the side of the road. Jesus tells the story of the priest in a shocking way to show that the laws are not enough. The love of neighbor has to extend further than the love of the law. By telling this story, Jesus is leading the listeners down a dangerous road of interpreting the law and concerns of the faith through the lens of the love of neighbor, regardless of the risk and disruption to our lives. 
It is a road that once you start down, you cannot turn back from. By showing the priest as the one who literally misses the point, Jesus reveals that God has a greater plan. Some might even call it a risky proposition. Simply following the rules set down by the faith may not be enough. Let me say it again. I want to make sure you hear this. Simply following the rules set down by the faith may not be enough. Jesus shocks his audience with this story of the priest, or in our context, the pastor of the church who does not stop for someone in need, who does not show love of neighbor regardless of how much they have oriented their life to love God. Once again, Jesus pushes for more. He asks more of those who follow him than simple obedience to the law. Jesus calls us to move from self-preservation to love of the other with the cross centered on that road. Are you willing to travel with him on that dangerous road that leads to the cross?